0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 21, John chapter 1, 21, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, "I am going fishing." After he was raised from the dead, this is the word of the Lord. We're coming to the end of our teaching series in the book of John. We only have two messages left, one this week and then one next. Both come from the, a strange chapter that almost feels like an add-on to the book. Last week we saw the climax of the book in chapter 20. Three different appearances of Jesus after his resurrection to three very distinct groups of people. And as we've been seeing all summer long, Jesus engaged those three different kinds of people in three very different ways based on their needs. And as he did so, we saw that God has a heart for these kinds of people. God has a heart for the marginalized, those who are living on the outskirts of society. He has a heart for moral failures who can't seem to live up to what they know is right and good. He has a heart for radical skeptics, Who are struggling with their doubts these are the people that are on god's heart in a special way we saw that last week and so you come to chapter 21 and i have to start wondering what are we going to see here that we haven't seen already john told us that he could fill the world with books about all the things that jesus did that he has lots and lots of material at his disposal so whatever he writes is because it tells us something about that that's essential about our god and is essential For our faith in this God. So, what then does chapter 21 add? Well, it's amazing to see Jesus appear to his disciples after they had rejected him. That's amazing grace. But it does kind of leave a question hanging out there. How does he really feel about them? Okay, he came to them, that was good, but they had rejected him. They rejected him after promising not to abandon him. And so their failure is not a failure in the abstract their failure is personal. They failed him. They broke trust with him. They couldn't handle the pressure of the moment. They went back on their word. They did what they said they wouldn't do. And they broke their relationship. You can imagine then the questions that are sort of hanging out there. Where where does that leave us with Jesus? How's he feeling about us? It's true of all of the disciples, especially true of Peter. Peter had led the charge about how loyal he was going to be, how, he much, how, how much he would sacrifice to remain loyal, even if that meant he had to die in the process. He's a little bit more in the foreground than the rest of the disciples, and then he, in the foreground, denies Christ. Where does he now stand with Jesus? Now let me ask you, kind of an aside, let me ask you first, what do you do when someone breaks your trust? When someone violates their relationship with you? When someone turns their back on you? Or when someone waits for you to turn their back and then they stab you in it? What do you do when someone that you had been close to lies to you? Or they lie about you? Or they ignore you? They mistreat you? They shut you out? They break their agreement with you? What do you do when you feel betrayed? I was talking with a man one time. He described a friend that he had grown up with in school. And this friend did something to him that that felt like such a violation of their friendship that this man told me, I cut him off right then and there. We'd hung out for years. We'd been in each other's houses. We knew each other's families, but I never spoke to him again. And he said it with a sense of pride, a sense of this is how strong I am relationally. You will never hurt me again. That's one way people deal with betrayal. They cocoon themselves. They withdraw into themselves. They build walls between themselves and other people. They wrap themselves with thick layers of gauze to guard and protect themselves. Other people don't go quite as far as this man did, but they go down similar roads. They withhold their heart from someone else. They're cold to that other person. They give the other person the silent treatment. They hold themselves back from the person who's hurt them. It looks strong, but it isn't. It's self-protective. They harden themselves so they can't be hurt without realizing that that hardness now does what? It prevents them from having any relationship and having any connection. It's one way of handling betrayal. It's more of the passive way. Guard yourself. You do whatever you have to do so that you won't be hurt again. There's also a more active way of handling betrayal, a little more aggressive, which is essentially to say, I will make you pay for what you did to me. I will punish you. Some people make other people pay physically. They're threatening. Some people are abusive physically. Some people are directly physically abusive. Some people are indirectly physically abusive. They throw things at the walls They break things, they slam doors, they stomp around. Other people punish more verbally than they do physically. They yell and scream. They badger the other person with questions. They insult them. They berate them. They insist on bringing the same thing up over and over and over and over and over again until they drive it into the ground until they drive the other person into the ground with it. And they do all of that to communicate very simply, I will make you pay. So that what? So that you'll know I'm serious. And so that you will think twice, you will think many more times than twice before you ever pull a stunt like that again. Because if you do, you know exactly what's waiting for you on the other end of that. Now very interesting, think about all of these strategies, the passive ones, the aggressive ones, you think about all these strategies, as different as they all are, they actually have one thing in common. Not one of them is motivated by love. They're not strategies that begin by thinking, what does this other person need? This person who has violated our friendship, who's broken our relationship. This person has been faithless. They've been captured by faithlessness. Now, what do they need in order to become a faithful person who loves faithfully? None of those earlier strategies think like that. They're not restorative strategies. They're all self-serving. They're all self-protective. And therefore, what do they do? They further harm the relationship. They are faithless ways of handling faithlessness. And when you engage in them, you will ruin the relationship that much more. Because instead of just one person sinning against the relationship, now you have two. Now, did the first person start it? Well, uh, of course they did. But does that first violation of trust justify the second violation? Does it justify additional third, fourth, eighth, 18th violations? Uh, Of course not. At which point someone's going to say, okay, now I I feel like you've kind of led me into this cul-de-sac. I feel like there's no real good answer here. If protecting myself is bad and if punishing the other person is bad, what am I supposed to do? I'm just supposed to put up with whatever they've done? I I just pretend it wasn't as bad as it was, that it didn't really bother me, that that they can do whatever they want, whenever they want, and, and I just have to get over it. Is that what you're telling me? That's not what Scripture tells you. That's not what God does when you break trust with him. How do you know that? John chapter 21. Here you see Jesus engaging with a group of guys, especially Peter, who have violated their friendship with him and broken his trust and he neither protects himself or punishes them. Instead, by the end of the chapter, you realize that what he's done is restore Peter. He's restored him relationally, and he's restored Peter to his place in ministry. Now, to discover how that's possible, you have to ask two questions, two questions that we'll try to answer today. First, what do you need to do when trust is broken? How do you need to respond when someone violates your trust, when they break relationship? What do you need to do? And then secondly, what do you trust in that lets you do that? What are you trusting in other than protecting yourself or punishing them? What are you trusting in that allows you to respond differently? So what do you need to do? And what do you trust in when someone breaks your trust? Just two points today. I shouldn't have to say this, but I'm going to anyway. Today's not going to answer all of your questions about how to restore relationships. There's a lot more that can be said Today's not exhaustive, but today does what? It gives us a good start. It gives us a start that will keep us from making things worse. It gives us a start that will open a door to restoration. So let's get started. What do you need to do when trust is broken? Jesus does two things here. First, he moves toward the person who's hurt him. Verse four, he stands on the shore of where the disciples are fishing. He's gone looking for them and he's found them. He puts himself into their general vicinity. He enters into their world. He doesn't wait for them to come find him. Then verse 5, he calls to them. He initiates a conversation with them. He doesn't stand there silently on the shore waiting for them to row in and then start talking with him. Just like when he appeared to them twice before, he goes to them and he is the one who breaks the ice. He starts the conversation, he initiates. But he does more than simply initiate. He communicates secondly in his initiation that he has good intentions. Verse 5, he uses a word of intimacy. Our translation, uh, in our translation, he calls to them children, which is a literal translation of the word he used. But when you use it in this context, it actually has a different connotation than older, younger. According to the lexicon used in this context, what's in view is affection. The word signals that there is a special relationship here, a relationship of endearment. So Jesus is not demeaning them by calling them children. He's telling them, you're special to me. You are friends. I am friendly. And his words communicate, here's how I feel about you. They communicate his goodness. But more than what he says, however, is what he does. They get on land and they discover, verse 9, that he's been making breakfast and that it's for them. He invites them, verse 12, to a warm meal after they've been working all night. Verse 13, he serves them personally. Now, what is he doing? He's signaling his heart for them in his words and in his actions. He's letting them know that he is for them, not against them, that he's thinking about them, that despite what they've done, he still has their best interests at heart. They have been faithless to him and he remains faithful to them. And they know that by how he acts toward them. So let me ask you, is that how people experience you? When someone sins against you, do they find you warm? Do they find you inviting? Do they find you welcoming? Do they find you still committed to them and still committed to your relationship with them? Do they find you spending lots and lots of your energy to let them know that? Is that how people experience you? Now, let me confess something. This is hard. This is hard for me personally. I don't think I'm alone in this, but it's hard for me to communicate friendliness when I don't feel friendly. It's easier for me to shut down, easier for me to hold a grudge. About 15 years ago, I wrote in one of my books about one of the contrasts between my wife Sally and I about how when she forgives me, she lets things go. She doesn't treat me according to the ways that I really deserve to be treated which has been amazing to me to experience. It's taught me an awful lot about God's grace, in part because I find it really hard to let things go. I find it very hard to be warm, like I was not very warm this past week with someone in my family. I find it very hard. And when you hold a grudge, when I hold a grudge, when you feel like you've been sinned against, it's so hard to go to that other person and restart the relationship. You feel like, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm not the one who screwed everything up between the two of us. You should be the first one to make a move here. And I really don't want to communicate good feelings until you start first. Because you might take advantage of me again. It's been very good to see that over the past 15 years, I've grown. I think I'm more gracious than I was. But when I look at Jesus standing there on the shore, when I look at myself this past week, I realized how much further I still have to go. So I'm asking, please pray for me. I'm not just speaking to you. Scripture here is speaking to me. So first, what do you need to do when someone breaks your trust? You need to go to them. You need to go with an attitude that says, I still care about you, I want you back. But second, what do you trust in? What gives you the inner strength to go to somebody with that kind of attitude? What gives you the energy? The power, the confidence to go to someone who's already proven they can't be trusted. What motivates you? What do you trust in when someone else can't be? Well, there are two bad options here. Option one, you figure, well, you just have to trust them anyway. You have to trust that their goodness, that their concern for you, that their ability to overcome their weaknesses is gonna be strong enough that they can be trusted, which frankly sounds like a horrible idea. They've just shown you that they can fail you. They may not want to fail, but clearly they're able to. So deciding to rest all your weight on them feels like you have to shut your brain off. Like you have to play, let's pretend with your relationship. Let's pretend that you won't ever let me down again. That doesn't seem reasonable. It it certainly doesn't seem hopeful. So if you can't trust the other person, option two, you're left having to trust yourself. You have to trust your ability to police the other person, to hold them accountable so they can't sin against you again. And so you have to check their computer history. You have to take away their access to credit cards and to bank accounts. You have to badge them with questions about where they were and what they were doing. None of which makes the other person feel like you're for them. Worse, it makes you realize you don't have a true friendship. Because the quality of the relationship now depends completely on how well you are able to stay on top of what they're doing. And so it starts to feel like the friendship is only as good as you are, not as good as both of you could make it. And you're afraid then that as soon as you let up, it's going to go downhill again. Both of those options cannot be what Jesus is trusting as he's standing on the shore of the sea calling out to the disciples. Think about it for a moment, you realize, it's not what He trusts in his relationship with you either. Jesus never makes you feel like he's playing, Let's pretend that you're better than you are." And you also never feel like he's smothering you constantly on you. How is that possible? How can he give himself to relationship? How can he give and give and give and give and give without giving up? It's because of the resurrection. His resurrection introduces a third option because his death and his resurrection bring a new reality into play. Think about the passage and you realize here that you have hints, you have indicators of the resurrection. Verse four, it's early in the morning, just at the break of day. And that's language that's intended to take you back to chapter 20, verse one, where Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, quote, while it was still dark. As Jesus is standing there at the break of day on the shore, it's a small hint. It's an indicator that you have a similar kind of setting. It reminds you Jesus has risen. And it's telling you, don't forget it. There is a new reality that's taken place. Something new has broken into this world from outside. Something that is much stronger than all the sin that controls everything that takes place here in this world. It's early in the morning. The resurrection is here. You have another hint down in verse 12. Jesus doesn't look like he used to. Did you, catch, did you catch how strange verse 12 is? None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. In other words, they really wanted to ask a question. They really wanted to look at him and say, who are you? But they didn't dare. They didn't dare because underneath, they really knew who he was, but the question was still in their minds. How does that make any sense? It has to be because Jesus doesn't look like what they remembered. Similar when Mary Magdalene meets him for the first time in the garden, uh, a- after he's risen and she doesn't recognize him at first. She thinks he's the gardener until he talks to her. Similar to the ways that the disciples on the w- road to Emmaus, they don't recognize who they're talking to all day either. His disciples have to see him by this and know him by the scars. His body after the resurrection doesn't look like his former body, and it's another hint, it's another reminder here of the reality of the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection is right there in that moment. Jesus has brought it with him. There's some other changes too, not just in Jesus, but there's something different about creation, something you catch a glimpse of in this miracle. Honestly, don't you think this miracle is kind of weird? I mean, it, it, it's a strange miracle. Jesus already has fish cooking. Why do they need to catch any? He doesn't need their help getting breakfast for them. He's already got fish there. So why tell them to cast the net on the other side? Think about the picture that you're being offered here. Before Jesus says anything, the water is barren. It's empty. The guys take all night proving that. They fish all night. They catch nothing. Then the resurrected resurrected christ shows up and suddenly when he speaks it's all it takes when he speaks the water is now full of fish it's teeming with fish it's swarming with fish where previously there were no fish and i'm using those words very intentionally teeming swarming because they translate a word that you find way back in genesis Genesis chapter one, when God is creating the world and he's speaking to the world that he's making. And at one point he says, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And when he says that the water that previously was empty, devoid of living creatures, is now full swarming with these living things. And once it is swarming, God stops and he gives his stamp of approval. He says, that's good. That's the way it should be. What's this tell you? It tells you that a world without fish is bad. It's not the way that the world should be. God made this world to be rich, full, abundant, swarming with living creatures. When it's not, what are you seeing? You're seeing that the curse is in control. And so the guys spent all night long living in a cursed world. What Jesus' miracle from the shore tells you is that the power of that curse has been broken. The renewal of all things has begun. The restoration of all that's been broken is here. The power of the curse is broken. The nets are full. You've now entered into a world where your labor is rewarded. The nets are full, but they don't break, which is also new. Under the curse, creation fights against you. Nothing works the way that it's supposed to. God cursed the ground after Adam and Eve sinned. He said, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You can't do anything easily in this world. Something always resists you and resists what you're trying to do. Fishing nets break in this world if they're too full. But at the word of the risen Christ, the nets are full and they don't break. The futility of living in a cursed world is being taken away. Creation is no longer fighting the children of God. Why do you need chapter 21? Why do you need to know this miracle? It tells you that you're standing at the dawn of a new creation. You're standing at the break of, the de- of day after a long, dark, futile, exhausting night. A night of living and toiling in the old creation and now all of that is changing. The sun is rising on the new creation. A new day is upon you. It's overseen. It's organized by the risen Lord. A new day is... That's about a whole lot more than fish. A new day that is about you. It's about all of the children of God. It's a new day that says, if simple things like fish and nets work now the way they are supposed to, now that Christ has risen, how much more will the children of God work the way that they are supposed to? That's the point of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 17, we learn that if anyone is in Christ connected to Christ, united with Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And because the old has passed away, verse 16, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. Or as other translations put it, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. We no longer look at someone and say, there's no hope for you. You're always going to be like that. Why don't we say that? It's not because we have such great confidence in that person. It's because we have such great confidence in the new creation. We have confidence in verse 14 that Christ died for us. And therefore, since we are in him, we're joined with him. We also died to what? To the old creation. We have confidence that we died to the old creation and its ways of living because we died to its controlling power over us. We have confidence in the gospel that what Jesus did wasn't enough simply to hope that someone could be different. We have confidence that what Jesus did guarantees that they will be different. That's why Jesus is standing there, welcoming his guys with open arms, Peter included. He's not putting his hope and trust in Peter, that Peter's never going to fail him again. Read the book of Galatians. You discover that Peter did fail again. Jesus is putting his hope in his own resurrection The resurrection has pulled Peter out of the old creation, made him part of the new. And now because of that, what is most true of Peter is what he will be, not what he was. And the question then is, do you believe that? Do you believe that the resurrection is so powerful that it will overcome every bit of brokenness in someone when Jesus makes them part of the new creation? Do you believe that? Say, well, how do you know if you do or, or don't? Listen to your self-talk when someone sins against you. What is it that goes through your mind when your spouse breaks your trust? What goes through your mind when your child sins against you or your parent or your friend sins against you? Do you think, do you think things like, oh, what's the use? Why even bother trying? She won't listen. He'll never change. When you think like that, you're considering someone from a worldly point of view. If they're a Christian, you're denying the power of the resurrection in their life. You're saying it won't work for them. They're always going to be what they were. If they're not yet a Christian, you're saying they're never going to be a Christian. But how do you know that? What right do you have to be hopeless about them? How do you know, in fact, that this failure that you're now struggling with is not what Jesus will use to actually bring them to himself? When you think hopeless thoughts about someone, about anyone, you're considering them from a worldly point of view. You're saying people don't change. You're saying past failures are indicative of future performance, that their past controls them. You're saying the power of the resurrection, the new creation cannot affect their life. You're denying the resurrection. And when you do that, you're looking at people through the lens of the curse. Which means what? It means you are caught up. You are controlled in that moment by an old creation view of life, a pre-resurrection view of life. You're not living out of the new creation. And here's the wonder of the gospel. In that moment, Jesus does not lose hope for you. Just like he came to Peter and to the disciples, he comes to you and says, now that I've been raised from the dead, nothing has to remain the same. Nothing has to be what it was, not even you. And Peter understands that. (laughs) You look at that mad dash he makes to get to Jesus, throws himself into the water. You don't do that unless you know what, you know that you will be received. Jesus sees him. And because Jesus sees him in this new way through the lens of the new creation, nothing will get into Peter's way of getting to Jesus. When you know that you belong to Christ, that you're part of this new creation world, you will run just that fast. Do you know that? Do you know that's how Jesus sees you as part of the new creation, fully confident that you will not be what you were, but that you will be just like him. If you're not running to Jesus as fast as Peter is when you have sinned against other people, If you are holding yourself back from Jesus, the answer is no. You haven't yet understood how Christ sees you. You haven't yet understood what his resurrection means for you. And if you hold yourself back from others when they have sinned against you, or if you make them pay for what they've done, you haven't yet understood what the resurrection means for them, and you haven't yet understood what the resurrection means for you. And the good news of the gospel is that you could. Tell Jesus that you want him to find you, that you want him to come looking for you, that you want to experience the reality of the resurrection in your life, that you want to be done with the old creation. You want to be done with old creation ways of living, with old creation ways of seeing things, and that you want to live in the power of this new day that he's brought. Tell him that, and he will come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for opening the door to a whole new reality. Lord, thank you that we do not have to be what we were. Lord, that we do not need to sin against you. We don't need to sin against others. That we don't need to take others' sin against us as though it was ultimate. Thank you, Lord, that you have come to rescue us, to restore us, to bring us into this glorious new creation. Thank you, Lord, that that will be our destiny because of what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Close this time with a song uh, Just reflecting upon this gift of Christ, um, remembering that by his blood we are received, we are accepted as we are, and may we find hope and joy in that. Gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer There is no more forever now to give He is my joy